We come this morning to our sermon passage, and we are continuing on our sermon series in the book of Galatians. And this morning, we are in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. So it's printed for you in your bulletin, but, or if you have your Bible or phone, I invite you to turn there. As you're pulling that up, I found it interesting, you know, if you read through the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus in this world. And it's fascinating, if you really think about it, you can sit down and read the Gospels. You can read one of the Gospels in an hour if you read it through. Jesus lived a pretty significant life, I think we would all say that. (laughs) So it's fascinating to me that we only have a handful of snapshots from his life. And that means that kind of everything that we find in the Gospels has a significance to it. It shows us the personality of Jesus. It shows him inhabiting a world that's marred by sin, how he responds to it. It shows us what he delights in the most. It shows us what he values. And it also shows us what makes him furious. You know, anger may not be an emotion that we necessarily associate with Jesus, but there are a handful of times in the Gospels when Jesus gets angry. And I mean angry, angry. And one of them we read about just a few minutes ago, Mark chapter 10. I've preached about it before, but this is the place, the only place where the Gospels describe Jesus as being so angry that he was indignant. To be indignant isn't just to be aggravated or frustrated or even just plain angry. Indignancy is more like being grieved. You're so mad that your heart sinks. You see something that has shaken you, not shaken you necessarily to the core, but it's something that offends you to the deepest extent. What was happening in Mark chapter 10 is Jesus was teaching, and as he's teaching, he's actually teaching about divorce, so this big adult topic. People are gathered around to hear him teach. Think of it like a TED Talk. That might date me a little bit. I don't think those are popular anymore. But, you know, Jesus is teaching, and all of a sudden, all these families start showing up with their kids. And kids don't know how to act in a TED Talk. You know what I mean? They don't have their sense of of proper uh, etiquette in a public setting. Kids have their wiggles. Kids have their noises. Right? They don't know what they're supposed to do when someone important is talking. And so Jesus is talking about this big, important adult thing to people in a crowd who probably think they're big and important and very adult. And the disciples, the people that are following after him, being trained by him, get annoyed. And they start rebuking these families that have brought these kids in here. Think of it like the event coordinator for the TED Talk, you know, the important speakers up there giving his world-changing speech. And there's kids on the front row, like, wallowing around on the ground. And he's like, ah, oh, that's going to be a terrible camera shot. Oh, I bet they bleed over in the audio. So the disciples are like, get the kids, get the kids out. Parents, what are you doing? Jesus is important. He's talking about adult stuff. Get those kids out of here. And this, this is what makes Jesus indignant. Why? Because it means that his disciples have not just misunderstood what he's about. And they're not just misrepresenting him to others, which they are. 
It means that they, as his disciples, are actively standing as barriers between him and people he has come to love. The people that are following him to learn what the kingdom of God is about, to later on write scripture, to later on preach and plant churches, are standing as barriers between Jesus and these families with children. It's what makes Jesus furious. Because the disciples were saying that only those people who could sit still and listen, only those who knew the right way of act, only those who could prove in their actions that they've got it together were welcome to Jesus. But Jesus would have none of it because the truth is we receive the grace of God like children with empty hands or not at all. It's an either or. We either receive the kingdom of God like children without resumes and nothing in our hands to commend ourselves to Jesus and we receive it as a gift or we don't receive it at all. In that group of disciples that day who was rebuking those families was a man named Peter. An incredibly important man in that first generation of the church. A man named Peter who obviously missed the point here. And our passage today, which we're about to read, is about a time about 15 years later when Peter makes a very similar mistake. When he does the same kind of thing again. Except for this time it's not children. It's people who aren't Jewish. This time it's not children. It's people who are ethnically different than him. And the reason why the Apostle Paul writes it in Galatians is because he has looked back at these churches in Galatia in this region that he had planted and he sees that they're about to make the same mistake too with terrible consequences. With that said, we're reading this morning Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 through 21. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You're a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, the Gentiles, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Well, absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. And I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in it you show us who you are and what you're about, and so you show us who we are in you. I pray in these moments as we attend to the riches of your word that you would speak by your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts, that we may see and feel and know that peace that is beyond knowledge, all the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to break this sermon up into a couple different sections to help get our mind around it. And the first one this morning, I'm going to call Two Steps Forward. Two Steps Forward. Because last week we looked at the first ten verses of chapter 2. And if you were here, we saw how Paul recounts this meeting that he had as a leader in the church in Antioch with the church in Jerusalem. These two very different churches. Remember, Antioch was this incredibly prosperous and diverse city. And so the church there was prosperous and very diverse. Lots of cultural backgrounds. But the church in Jerusalem, which was a relatively poor city, was a church that was one culture. 99.9% of the people in Jerusalem were Jewish backgrounds. So they had the same experiences, the same basic family structure, the same history. And these two churches had come together and leaders had met because they saw, we're very, we look very different. Like, we, we look very, very different from the outside. Let's meet together and make sure we're on the same page. Because as the gospel spreads, the church globally is just going to get more and more diverse. Let's make sure we're on the same page. And the great thing about that meeting, Paul talks about it. They said when they came away from that meeting, they came away in agreement. That even though they looked a lot different from each other, that they believed the same gospel. That it may look from the outside very different culturally, but that the core was the same. That a person can be right with God, can be declared of worth and value apart from anything they've done, apart from their ethnicity or anything. They can be right with God by faith in the finished work of Jesus and Jesus alone. That the gospel, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus... God had brought forgiveness, transformation, and hope was the core. Might look different from the outside, but they're on the same page. And this is great. This is fantastic. They come to this agreement of unity. They're on the same page. They're ready for the next step of the gospel going out to the Roman Empire to plant new churches. They can be energized. And after this meeting, what happens is both Peter, this apostle who had followed Jesus in his time on earth, who is called to plant churches that are primarily focused culturally toward people of Jewish backgrounds. And Paul, this disciple who has been called to bring the gospel to people who aren't of Jewish backgrounds, they both head out from Jerusalem with plans to start missionary journeys. And in fact, they both go to Antioch. They go to this city that's kind of at the crossroads. It's the third largest city in the world at the time. Think New York City. It's at this cultural crossroads. They can go from Antioch basically anywhere in the world pretty easily. So they both are going to use Antioch as their base of operations. So Paul goes out first. And his first missionary journey, you can read about it in the book of Acts, he's gone for about nine months. And he travels through different cities planting new churches and setting up uh, structures of leadership. He leaves elders in place at these different places. 
And one of the places that he went in this first missionary journey was the region of Galatia. The people that this letter is written to. So that's just a little bit of background. Paul's gone out. He's gone for nine months. And all this time, it seems like Peter is in Antioch. And he's maybe making his connections. He's fundraising. He's getting ready to go out for his missionary journey. And when Peter gets to Antioch, he seems to have jumped in both feet in this diverse church. So Peter has lived almost none of his life around people who aren't from a Jewish background. So he's in the city he's kind of never been to before, incredibly diverse place, and he has jumped in with both feet. I don't mean he just goes to a couple of restaurants. (laughs) They didn't have restaurants back in the day like that. I mean that he gets to Antioch, and he gets deeply enmeshed in the lives of these non-Jewish people that are in the church. They start living together. They're doing life together as equals. And what this was for Peter is he was living out the reality of the gospel that had captured his heart in a brand new way. He had been unified by faith and in life with people that he never would have associated with at all before Jesus. And this was no small thing for Peter as a Jewish man. Jewish people in that world, they saw their distinctiveness from non-Jewish people as, as a crucial part of who they were. Not only would they not eat certain types of foods, a good, uh, faithful Jewish person at the time would have never gone into the house of somebody who wasn't Jewish. And they would have never had somebody who wasn't Jewish over to eat. They had too many questions about where the food came from. What have you been up to? You know, so they pretty much drew very strong, distinctive lines. And drawing those lines were an essential part of what made them them. Yet Peter, Peter arrives in Antioch, and he knew that what Jesus had done had shattered this former way of life, and that the power of the gospel meant that Jesus was leading him to accept non-Jews as full participants in the grace of God. Because after all, if God had accepted people through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, how could Peter do anything different? If Jesus was pleased to win people to himself and not lay conditions on them of you need to jump through these religious hoops, you need to culturally become this, Peter cannot do any differently. This is a profound example to me of how the gospel guides us and leads us into walking in freedom. This is two steps forward, walking in the gospel. Peter Peter had stepped further into the grace of God in Antioch, allowing the truth of the gospel to guide how he lived with others and how he treated others and how he saw them and spoke about them. It was a powerful thing. And that leads me to my next section, Three steps back. Three steps back. Two steps forward, three steps back. So I said this was a pretty revolutionary thing for Peter to do this individually. This is him walking into some discomfort. He's going into houses he never would have been at before. He's having food set before him he never would have eaten before. He's singing songs in worship he never sang before, I'm sure. All these different things. And word of this had made its way back to Jerusalem, where Peter 
had been a pastor, more or less, the leader of that church in Jerusalem. And in the aftermath of the word of that getting back to Jerusalem, Peter gets a visit from a group of people from Jerusalem. Paul talks about them as a group of men from James. And to put it in perspective, when he says James here, James is the literal brother of Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph. So this is Jesus' brother sending a, a group of people to be like, Peter, uh, we heard some things like, what's going on? What's going on here? And the reason why is because things were getting intense in Jerusalem. I'm going to give a little bit of background here. Don't let your eyes glaze over because this is important. <laughs> Historical background. So at the time, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were, place, were facing incredible persecution. What had happened is this new political party had started up around Jerusalem called the Zealots. And the Zealots were people that were saying, the Roman Empire has been, uh, had their thumb on us here in Israel for way too long. And we got to drive them out. So let's get ready. We're going to go to war. We're going to get all of our, we're getting our armory going. We're getting all the weapons we can. And we're telling everybody, we're drawing a line in the sand. Are you with us? Are you against us? There's no middle ground. Are you with us? We are the true Jewish people. And anybody who they suspected of being soft on non-Jews and their relationships with people who aren't Jewish, they said, well, you're a traitor. You're a traitor. And they would fix their eyes, as you can imagine, on Christians. You know, this is uh, maybe a year, not even a year after this uh, meeting between the, the leaders in the Jerusalem church and the leaders in the Antioch church, where they decided that you can be a part of our, of our religion without becoming Jewish, of course the zealots are like, well, then you're not truly Jewish. You have traded us in. You have turned your back. And so they become the opposition. They became the opposition. And so imagine that context, and word gets back that one of, if not the primary Christian leader in that world, is in Antioch eating with Gentiles. So this is a powder keg ready to blow in Jerusalem. They got political pressure. They got violent pressure coming against them. And word gets back that maybe the primary leader of the church is in Antioch disregarding all the Jewish customs. As you can imagine, this becomes a big problem for the Jewish Christians that are back in Jerusalem. All of a sudden, they don't have an answer. You know, the zealots come and they say, well, you're, you know, your main leader's out there doing whatever. You guys are plainly traitors. You're in bed with the enemy. How dare you accept those Gentiles? They hate us. And that's why James had sent those folks to him. It's easy for us to imagine, I think, why James would have sent that group. He's saying, hey, Peter, I know you're enjoying this freedom in Antioch. But it's making things really, really hard for us here in Jerusalem. So maybe pull back a little bit until this blows over. He's saying culturally, socially, this is really tough for us. This is really hard for us. People are losing jobs over this. 
Peter. People are getting kicked out of their synagogues, which was like their local churches. People are losing family and friends over you having meals with Gentiles. Can you pull back a little bit? And I get it. I get it. Because it is true. Peter's actions were making things difficult for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So in response to this request, Peter does what many of us might think is the sensible thing. He pulls back. He pulls back from his practice of eating with non-Jewish Christians. And all the Jewish Christians in Antioch follow his lead. They say, okay, Peter's a wise guy. Peter traveled with Jesus. Peter's an apostle. So if he's doing that, okay, it makes sense. He's just making the wise decision. They probably would not even have said they had changed any of their views. They probably still would have said, yeah, you know, Gentiles can be accepted into the church and accepted by Jesus without any conditions. But right now, in the sake of wisdom, in the face of this difficulty, we're going to pull back until things blow over a little bit. But what happens in the aftermath and why Paul gets so angry is because what this means for that church in Antioch is that you have two classes of Christians. They made a decision that seems to make sense on paper, but what, has, what it's meant is you've got the varsity Christians, the Jewish Christians, and you've got JV. You've got the non-Jewish Christians. And what it means is that Peter is declaring by his actions, no matter how well-reasoned they are for him, that he will not fully accept people that Jesus has fully accepted. That he is wiser than Jesus, I suppose. Peter, maybe not intentionally, is making people jump through hoops. And that brings me to my next section. When we're three steps back, what do we do? We go back to the gospel. When we're three steps back, individually, when we're three steps back as a church, we go back to the gospel. On occasion in high school, I'd walk home from school. I went to Triton High School over here. And it really, if I took the right path, it really... It took me 10 minutes to get home. I could get on the railroad track and go down. Mom, I don't know if you know, I walked all the time. Okay. <laughs> I'd always say, yeah, I arranged a ride, and i just walk home. It was fun. I enjoy walking. Always have. Um, I really didn't live that far. And one day I was walking with my buddy, Robert, Robert Martinez, and we cut through this patch of woods. I don't know why we thought we need to find a shortcut. Because, it, again, it wasn't really far. And so, but we're like, you know what? Let's, take, let's go off the path here. Let's go through this woods. We'll cut through. We'll come out over here. Okay, we thought we were geniuses. So we found this thing. We're traipsing along, and there's a creek. Creek I didn't know was there. Creek that's just in the middle of this wood. And it wasn't very wide. And I had all the gusto of a 10th grader. And I thought, well, I'm just going to leap over this creek. I'm just going to do it. And Robert goes first, and he's always a great athlete, so he clears it with no problem. And I'm like, I've I got this for sure. Backpack on, take off running. I jump, and I made it, but I stumbled, and my biology textbook fell out of my book bag into the creek. By the time we had retrieved the book, you know, aired it out to make sure, because that wasn't my book, that it wasn't ruined, we had spent more time taking the shortcut than the easier way home. 
The point is, when we came to that creek, we shouldn't have jumped over it. That doesn't make any sense. We should have just gone back to where we had entered the woods. When we had lost our way and we didn't know where we were, we should have just gone. That's what hikers will tell you. If you're hiking and you get lost off trail, just go back to where you left the trail. Just turn around. Go back. It's easier that way because you don't know what you're facing if you keep going. When you get lost, go back to the trail. Paul challenges Peter here in Galatians 2. He actually quotes this big section of what he said to Peter. And it is essentially him saying, you've lost the trail, go back to the path. You're off trail, go back to the gospel. Paul has been on this missionary journey. He's seen great successes. He's gone to all these different cities. He's seen people who have no Jewish background at all hear the gospel, place their faith in Jesus, and find in him all the grace they will ever need. It's the most amazing thing he's preached, and people have found their life's purpose. They've found that God is for them and not against them. And they've come into the kingdom of God, and he comes back to Antioch, this church that he loves, this church that is diverse. And what does he find out? When he gets back to town, he's shocked by what he sees. Because he gets back and he sees Peter and all these Jewish Christians, they are living apart from the rest of the church. They've built a metaphorical wall in the middle of God's people. And so Paul calls it what it is here. It's a way of life that denied the reality of what Jesus had accomplished. It may have made sense to them on paper. But it is a way of life that they have decided to live where they didn't factor the gospel into their decision making. It made sense to them on paper, but it was denying the reality of what Jesus has accomplished. And Paul points Peter and everyone else back to the gospel. It starts in verse 14. And I'll paraphrase what he says here. He says, Peter, we used to think of ourselves as so much better than non-Jews who were the worst sinners we could imagine. But we know differently now. We know that justification and righteousness and worth is not measured by God in ethnicity or observance to any rules or laws, but only by faith in what He's done in Christ. And so we look to Jesus for our righteousness, even if this looks like to other people that we are foolish and sinners. And that doesn't mean we're being led into sin. In fact, the real sin here in this situation would be, be, would be putting anything other than the grace of Jesus in place as a measure of worth. That's what he's talking about when he says, if I rebuild what I destroyed. But me, as an example, I have died to that way of measuring things. That old me that measured things by competition, that measured things by my uh, observance to my religion, that old way that measured things based on my ethnicity, I died to all of that. I was crucified to that in Christ. And the way of life, that way of life died with the crucified Christ. And my new life is shaped by Him who loves me. I've said it in previous weeks, that the gospel of Jesus is this frankly, outlandish story that is true. And if it is true, if God did, in a sense, invade this world of darkness and death, 
with his love, if Jesus did come and live, die, and rise from the dead, bringing forgiveness, transformation, and hope, everything else in our lives has to form around that. It has to take the center and become the gravitational center around which everything else forms. Has to be. If Jesus did live, die, and rise again for his people and in doing so bring grace that is not dependent on us earning anything, then it has to dramatically shake and remake all of who we are. It has to shake and remake how we think, feel, and act toward God. We have to never think about God apart from considering who God shows himself to be in the gospel. I think it's pretty easy for us religious folks who maybe grow up in church and grow up learning things like the Ten Commandments, which is wonderful, grow up uh, memorizing memory verses, which is wonderful, memorizing scripture is great. But when we don't have the context of the whole, I think it's easy for us to think of God as really some distant being who's furious at us, who is indignant because we keep screwing up, who's furious at us because we keep stumbling and following, falling. And if it was really up to him, he would boot us out in the hell right away. And then you got the gospel also over here. And Jesus kind of tricks God into loving us. I think that's kind of easy for us to do if we grow up in church. But that's not the truth at all. The reality is that the gospel is the good news that Jesus was sent by God out of love. That God looked down, in a sense, from the corridors of heaven and he saw all these obstacles that stood in the way between us and us finding our all and who he is. And he came in Christ to remove every single one of those obstacles, to defeat every single one of those enemies that was standing between us and him. We have to allow who God shows himself to be in the gospel to shape and define and refine our conception of who he is so that we don't walk around with a, with a misunderstanding of who our father is. So we don't walk around thinking that at the end of the day my father really despises me or he's so frustrated he can't stand me. It's not true. I've referenced this scripture all the time. Zephaniah chapter 3. It speaks of God when he thinks of his people as a father that has to stand up and dance and sing. He is so stoked about us. He so delights in us that he has to get up and dance. Is that our conception of God? That's the conception of God that Jesus invites us to in the gospel. That you can get up you can mess up big this afternoon. Don't do it. But if you do, if you mess up big, do you think, this is it, this is the last time, that's the, that's the end of the grace for me, or do, I, do you think, it's, it's the old meme, I can't believe I'm about to quote a meme, but it's the one where it's like, uh, our, our, our conception of God needs to be not, oh, I screwed up, my dad's going to kill me, but, oh, man, I messed up. I need to call my dad. It's, it's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. But that's, what's inviting, that's what the door is for us in the gospel. God knows we screwed it up. He knows it. He knows all the mistakes we're going to make. And yet he moved heaven and earth to find us in Christ. It doesn't just shape, though, how we think about God. It shapes how we think, feel, and talk and act toward others. We have to allow the gospel shape 
our relationships with other people? Are we prone to write people off that make us angry or keep messing up and keep disappointing us? I'm not talking about the wisdom of making boundaries. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about in our mind, do we write people off that we just don't like? Do we write people off that we're politically different from? Do we scoff? Do we mock? If we do, then I fear the gospel has not sunk deeply enough in our hearts for us to let it shape and transform how we treat other people. There are no lost causes in God's kingdom. None. There's nobody beyond hope. None. And we can abound in hope because we know if God's grace found us, it could find anybody. If God's love continues to find me and he doesn't cast me off, then man, that love can find anybody. We have to allow the fact of the gospel to shape how we think, talk about, and act toward other people. And friends, this might be the hardest one. We have to allow the gospel to shape how we think, feel, talk, and act toward ourselves. God does not call... It is not wisdom to be harsher on ourselves than God is on us. A lot of times the hardest thing of living by faith and not by sight is living by faith that I am forgiven and accepted by God even though what I see is someone I don't like. There are seasons in life when I do not like myself. There are lots of things in my life that I've thought, said, and done that I despise that fill me with shame and guilt when I think about them. But do you know who it doesn't fill with shame and guilt? It doesn't fill... God with shame and guilt. In fact, it tells us in Scripture that what He does with our sin is He casts it into a sea and it dwells at the bottom of the ocean never to rise up to condemn us again. Am I wiser than God? No. Does He want me to despise myself? No. Does He want me to delight in Him and delight in myself as somebody who has been created by Him, who is being redeemed by Him, even in the midst of me being in progress, Yes. Yes. That is allowing the gospel to shape ourselves. And so that doesn't just shape how we feel about ourselves. It shapes how we feel about the stuff we have in our lives. It shapes how we feel about the job that we've been placed in, in the neighborhood that we live in. What I'm talking about is we allow the gospel to be the lens through which we see everything else. Everything else. Peter and the Jewish Christians in Antioch had decided to act in a certain way because of reasons that make sense. But they made that decision without the gospel at the center of that decision-making progress, which means they made the decision without the fundamental thing, the most important thing, shaping their decision. When James sent that, I don't know what James told these people that were going to Antioch to investigate what Peter was doing. But if he told them you need to go tell Peter to draw back, to stop having a relationship with non-Jewish Christians, then he was decidedly in the wrong because it was out of step with the gospel. So Paul says here, without any bit of self-righteousness, back to the gospel. You guys are three steps back here. You have gone off the trail. I'm mixing my metaphors. I know. Go back to the gospel. You messed up here, and you've messed up big. To the point he talks about Peter stood condemned. 
He's not saying Peter lost his salvation, but he's saying what Peter was doing was a way of life that Jesus had condemned at the cross. But what Paul says, back to the gospel, Jesus destroyed that hostility that exists between Jews and non-Jews. It is an enemy that has been defeated by him. Let's not build it back. Go back to the gospel again and again and again. That brings me to my last section here. When everything looks like it's falling apart, go back to the gospel. Paul wasn't just telling this story to give the Galatian people information. He was telling them the story of him confronting Peter, which is really a remarkable thing if you think about it. These are kind of the two primary leaders of the early church in that first generation. And if I was trying to create a religion and fool everybody into thinking about it, I probably wouldn't say, hey, number one and number two really fell out with each other (laughs) like 15 years in. I kind of wouldn't have included this in my letter. But anyway, that's a whole different point. Uh, Paul tells them this story of him confronting Peter and Antioch for two reasons, I think. The first one's to encourage the Galatians to resist the idea that they need anything other than faith in Jesus to be whole and completely accepted in God's people. There was a danger happening in Galatia. There were false teachers there that were telling them, you need faith in Jesus plus this other stuff to really feel confident and assured of God's love for you. And Paul's telling them, look at this story. Even if you have to stand alone, even if you show up and people, uh, everyone is led astray, including Barnabas, which is like Peter's, uh, Paul's best friend, his key mentor. Even if you have to stand alone, even if you have to resist and confront people you love and respect, do not leave the gospel behind. It's the most important thing. The second reason that I think Paul included this is because what Paul describes here had just happened. And the confrontation did not end well. I think it's the reason why he quotes so much of it. Why he doesn't tell them, and as soon as I finished, everybody slow clapped and repented and said, Paul, you are right. We are being racist. Paul, you are right. We are doing wrong. Thank you for pointing it out. No, what happens, I think, is that Paul stood up right here and he pointed everybody back to the gospel and everybody went, nah. And Paul left that meeting as alone as he went into it. But Paul, I want to point this out, he leaves this meeting where he's quote-unquote lost. He lost the debate. But he's not despondent. He's not despaired. Because his validation and his vindication is Jesus. And because of that, he can take himself back to the gospel. Right here, I think Paul is in the middle of maybe the most stressful time in his entire life. This thing that he's devoted his life to in the last 15 years looks like it's unraveling. It looks like he's lost his community. It looks like he lost the argument entirely. He's lost his friendships. He's lost his mentor. He's got to feel like, oh man, all these churches we planted in the last nine months, they're going to go off the rails too. But what can he do? He brings himself back to the gospel. And he can stand with confidence and write with confidence because his confidence is in the truth and the power of the gospel. Friends, I point all this out To say this, when we are alone, when we feel alone, back to the gospel. When we feel crazy, back to the gospel. When we are weak, 
back to the gospel. When we're strong, I feel like that uh, uh, Fred Armisen sketch right now where he's like, straight to jail. Straight to jail. I don't know. Two people have seen that. I'm sorry. But back to the gospel. When we're weak, when we're stumbling, when we have failed, back to the gospel. When we're strong and things are going well, don't place your hope in that. Go back to the gospel. When we are hurt by other Christians, when we seem to be rejected, when we do the right thing and lose, always back to the gospel. When we're two steps forward, back to the gospel. When we're three steps back, back to the gospel. And when we really mess up, when we're not Paul, but we're Peter, when our prejudices have revealed themselves and they make sense to us and we rationalize them like Peter did, when we make decisions that impact other people, but we don't let the gospel factor into the decision-making process, what do we do? Do we wallow in guilt and shame? No, back to the gospel. When we think, feel, act, and speak for all the wrong reasons, back to the gospel. When we really mess up and we relapse, back to the gospel. When we do that thing we said we would never do again, Back to the gospel. Back to the gospel. And then, let's move forward in the gospel together. Never, uh, and bringing the gospel with us. Never leaving it behind. So I've said in past weeks, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not the ABCs of Christianity, and then maturity is moving on to something else. It is the A to Z. It is the whole thing. Not the ABCs, the A to Z. Not the on-ramp, the whole highway. Not the front door, the whole house. We never leave behind the fact that God moved heaven and earth in Christ to find us, to free us, to show us His love, that we might be swept up in His mercy. And that be the truest thing about us. Always, always, always back to the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you, the love that you have for us that's not just uh, uh, empty words, but that is embodied in the Word, Jesus Christ. Your love for us that is shown and proven in Him, that we can come to you and find all we need for salvation, for life, for identity. So, Lord, I pray that you would work within us now, move upon our hearts, that we would be people who go back to the gospel every single morning, every single evening, every single day. And that you would shape us as people who wear a gospel lens. That when we are thinking about you, when we're thinking about others, about ourselves, the things we have, the places we've been put, that we would let the reality of the gospel shape the decisions we make. Make us quick, Lord, to flee back to the gospel and make us quick to lead each other back to the gospel. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.